And if you want to be high, be high. If you want to be low, be low. Because there's a million ways to go. You know that there are. And if you want to be me, be me. If you want to be you, be you. Because there's a million things to do. You know that there are. Now, join in. Hello and welcome to Adjust Your Tracking. I'm Eric McClanahan. I'm Joe Von Ampen. Joe, uh, I might have to make amends to you after this episode. I, I don't know. <laughs> no, you're fine. <laughs> oh, good, good. We're okay. Uh, We're. I said, th- well, I don't know. I mean, I might, I might dig into you a little bit, you know, over the course of the episode. The resentment might wake up a little more the further we get into it, um, <laughs> as we are recording earlier than normal. But, um, you know. As as film dudes, um, it's pretty like it's not uncommon to be, you know, appreciative of the 70s. And over the course of doing this show, we, we've certainly uh, mythologized that era as like an era of, um, you know, a certain type of grit and uh, experimentalism of a of an unpredictability and a sort of character driven naturalism it was just like a wellspring of like all kinds of iconic films you know though that we weren't we weren't around for them when they came out we certainly like you know embraced them as like you know these 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 monuments of a time that's like so far gone you know um and the two two movies were two if not three movies we're going to be discussing are sort of like they're they're of that era, one of which is actually, you know, re- it's a recent, uh, recently restored uh, version of, not version, uh, <laughs> a recent restoration, let's start over, of uh, Dennis Hopper's Lost Oddity, the last movie from the early 70s, his follow-up, his directorial follow-up to Easy Rider. And the other film that we're going to be focusing on is a documentary coming out now about the work of Hal Ashby, who is certainly, you know, a a giant figure in 70s cinema. And so uh, I think that like this is this is a way for us to kind of like reapproach our mythologizing of the 1970s, because, you know, as as much as um, both Hal Ashby and Dennis Hopper are, you know, two, two figures who represent a struggle for true independence in the, the, the sort of Hollywood system, the studio system, you see the, the, the sort of like genuine effort of Hal Ashby as an artist to say something singular and honest and like his work stands the test of time. And then you see the, the problem of true independence in its danger of slipping into uh, self-congratulatory purposelessness um, with Dennis Hopper's, uh, you know, like mostly it was mostly like a lost movie for a long time. It was sort of legendarily kind of obscure and hard to find. You'd, you'd only find it on bootlegs in the sort of like nineties and early two thousands and um, so, like, these are these are two different kind of examples of an era that we've mostly kind of heroized over the course of this podcast. Yes. And um, but before we kind of dip into the 70s, uh, we're let's, you know, we, we were cognizant, you know, through enough of the 80s that like that's that seems to be 
you know, if not your era, it's certainly my era. It's mm-hmm. where where I've stayed marooned, according to my friend Jay Weinbrenner. He's like, wow, you are stuck in the 1980s. <laughs> uh, okay, fine. That's fair. But like the 1980s is seen as the kind of like the death of 70s cinema because it's when, you know, not only the studio system, like not just when the studio system became not just the system again, but it became corporations largely controlling everything and kind of gearing everything towards producing mega hits and blockbusters. And so it's seen as like the death of a certain spirit that was conjured up in the seventies. But, you know, like listening to someone like Quentin Tarantino, who he just talks about, I think he was prompted by somebody in an interview. that was like, you're, you know, outspoken about how you think move like, the eighties wasn't good for movies. And he's like, Oh yeah, it, it's a terrible time. And I was like, what? Like the whole, you're going to take a whole 10 years and just like reduce it to being a terrible time when like, that's when I grew to love movies. So I'm a little protective and resentful of people who are entirely dismissive of the era. Mm. But you and I both, you know, fans of seventies and eighties cinema, we both went to revival screenings separately, but you know, there were two, Two movies, one of which you saw to live and die in LA and at the Hollywood Theater, correct? That is correct. Uh, no, it was at the, uh, film, no, center. the film center. Oh, it was a, wow. Well, that's exciting. Um, it was for a Robbie Mueller tribute because he died recently, the DP. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's he great. He shot that, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, did they show it in 35 millimeter? Oh, yes, they did. And it was a very nice print, man. The colors really popped. And, and that movie needs the, the color you can get from a film print like that. So, yeah. Yeah. So I saw that movie a couple of years ago at the New Beverly print as well. And um, like it's William Friedkin is the director of To Live and Die in L.A. In case we haven't mentioned it enough on this this podcast, not this episode, but <laughs> just we certainly talked yeah, great length about To Live and Die in L.A. But um, he's like, you know, he's one of the the guys from the 70s. You know, he's director of the French connection of the exorcist. He was just like a big figurehead. So with a movie like to live and die in LA, it was, you could definitely sense a kind of like hyper stylization that was coming into play that like the naturalism of a movie, like the French connection, you know, like there, there was something a little more kind of MTV inspired. And I think that was like a criticism that was lodged against a lot of films and filmmakers in the 1980s was like how music video it's like, which now, you know, like at, at enough of a distance, the original music videos, you know, like there's, there's certainly an artfulness that like, once you get past your dismissiveness of it as a fad, you can kind of appreciate what it's kind of genuinely bringing to the table. Mm-hmm in terms of its aesthetics. <clears throat> but like, so you could criticize that it was like a, a more hyperkinetic, hyper stylized movie. It was more sort of like of the era that he was attempting to adjust to whether or not he naturally, you know, acclimated to the era is like, is arguable. Um, but like, you know, like there's, there is still something that I think as dismissive as, um, people like Quentin Tarantino are of the 1980s. There's like, there's something (laughs) that like the more you look back, like how much space and how much room and nuance is still involved in the movies that like you think are, are such in a hurry to be like 
hits and to be catchy and to be flashy and stylish. Like you just, you look at a movie like the one that I saw recently at the Hollywood forever cemetery was Beverly Hills cop, which I'll never stop seeing that on the big screen (laughs) whenever, whenever possible. And, um, like that movie, which like, it's become one of my favorite things to introduce people who think they know it, but like have most likely have never seen it. Like when, uh, the film center threw me my going away party when I, you know, moved from Portland to Los Angeles, I had them show Beverly Hills cop. Mm-hmm. And most of the people in the room actually had never seen it or it had been so long ago that they forgot most of it. Right. So I went with my friend Karina who legitimately by the end of it was, she was like, I have never seen that before. That was amazing. And so like <laughs> that movie, it was the biggest box office hit of 1984. Did you know that? I did not. I guess I'm not surprised given Eddie Murphy's stature at the time, but yeah. But it's just, it's not one that gets like, you know, well, I think this is the one that cemented how huge he was. Right. Cause it was like, he had Saturday night live. He had trading places, 48 hours. Delirious had just come out, but like this one was so gigantically huge. Yeah. You know that like, this is what kind of like, made it official that he was as big as he was, but because it's like a mega hit and you you could kind of associate it with the, the trend of movies that would follow with buddy movies and sort of fast paced, wise cracking cop movies. Like it, it fell into a, a, a duplicatable formula. Then you, you, you don't that you, you then run the risk of not identifying it as something singular mm. and as something that was groundbreaking at the time. And like f- four years ago, when I, I saw it at that arc light when they showed a Prince, <laughs> I had taken my friend Ross to see it, who had he had, he had never seen it before, and he was like, "This movie's like really weirdly dramatic." And I was like, "Yeah, like I said, like because it doesn't look like a comedy; it mm-hmm. looks like a straight up kind of like straightforward cop movie. It's not sort of comfortably overlit to let you know how much of a comedy it is. Like even though it's a vehicle." mostly for comedically driven action, it still doesn't sort of like safely feel like just a comedy. It can lapse into like really, you know, kind of like moving segments of drama at times. And like, I think that's what makes it feel closer to the seventies than it's probably, you know, associated with. Yeah. And like movies like, you know, it and to live and die in LA as much as they're exemplary of, you know, and of the eighties and a byproduct of the eighties, like the, the further we get, the less we, you know, we associate things with like, ah, oh, that's the death of this, but it's still like, it still was close enough to the source that the both, both of those films were, had a grit to them and had a sort of character driven quality to them. And like with to live and die in LA, there's a fucking fatalism to that movie oh, that man. like yeah. certainly belongs way more to the seventies than it does to the sort of like <clears throat> fist fist bumping optimism of like the Reagan era, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think it almost that, takes that era down within the movie. I mean, there's, there's, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can't like, I, I didn't see it, you know, in the theater at the time. I think that was a video movie, mm-hmm. but like, I can't imagine the like, you know, the, the sort of like yuppie clientele that might be going to see a movie like to live and die in LA. I'm like, ah, oh, it's a, it's a, it's a cop movie. All right. Or it's a secret service movie. Um, 
You don't need to specify though. Like people are, <laughs> they've got guns. They're fine. I um, only like secret service movies, <laughs> but uh, here's a 33 year old spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> the protagonist you're following for most of the movie gets shot in the fucking face. 15 minutes before the movie yeah. ends shot and killed. I should, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't pop back up. No, <laughs> they, they, they shot an alternate version where he does survive. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> But like the, I imagine the outcry of people like, what? Like mm. I, like I love that William Friedkin was like subversive enough to be like, you know, he's he was on shaky ground. I think transitioning from the seventies into the eighties, making, you know, a lot of like weird, weird movies. The way a lot of kind of like iconic filmmakers from the seventies were, you know, like he made Deal of the Century, which was like a Chevy Chase comedy, you know the they cover it in the Hal Ashby doc, Hal, where he shows his transition into the, into the eighties from the seventies and how he started making a lot of sort of ill received attempts at, you know, comedies or, you know, just ensemble movies that just weren't landing with people. You saw Robert Altman do it with a lot of his movies, but like, you know, just where someone like QT annoyingly enough is dismissive of an entire 10 year period there still was like, you know, like it still was close enough to the source that there, there were those traces that continued on. So like, you know, maybe, maybe that's just reassurance for us that there's, there's things that we we're trying to be mindful of now as we bemoan the death of things, you know, as, as we bemoan the sort of Disneyification of everything, you know, there are certainly things worth celebrating and preserving, that like we we don't want to turn a blind eye to, and with that, <laughs> let's focus on you know the 1970s and all of its glory and all of its problems. Yeah, let's do it. I want it legitimate and different and better than it's ever been done. When I squeeze off a couple of shots at you, you take it, hit it, and hit it hard. I want balls when you die. All right, let's roll them. All right, action. Or if this is going to be a documentary or a, uh, a lifestyle film or whatever you want to call it, I mean, if it's going to be that kind of thing, then it should expose. Um, at the same time, it's a destructive act. It's also a creative act for me because it's a creative act to say, hey, I'm not going to hide in the closet anymore. This episode is to put ourselves in check, essentially, because we, we like a lot of podcasters, a lot of film critics, modern film critics, exalt the 70s as though there were no bad movies made at the time and while while this isn't like say one of the like a towering inferno type of like big production that was that the sort of stuff that gets forgotten when people talk about the greatness of the 70s the last movie at least the the dennis hopper movie is and a just like the it might be the peak example of what i've seen in my life of the filmmaker hubris that existed at that time and the undoing that it led to what's interesting about it in some aspects is how it came before the era really even started. I mean, Dennis Hopper was a major part of kicking it off with easy rider. And (laughs) like two years later, he's kind of already gone through. He almost went through a modern day cycle of speed. Like he just sped through the decade himself in a manner of a couple of years where, you know, the reality, it took a lot of these directors 10 years to kind of fuck up their opportunity, you know, or, or you get to the point where it's essentially Dennis Hopper's last movie is heaven's gate 
Before Heaven's Gate, which is an infamous movie made by Michael Camino after he uh, became like the new exalted director in the 70s after making Deer Hunter. Um, And Heaven's Gate is one of the main films of the early 80s attributed to the real death of I mean, it it actually did hurt and end a studio at one point. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a fascinating time to dig into because it's easy to lionize this stuff to be like, Oh, these guys were so cool. And, or these artists were so like reckless and trying to push things. But then you start to see the cracks in it. Um, when you see not only the last movie, but this documentary that was made as Dennis Hopper was editing the movie and the editing process of the last movie is apparently where the real story I think exists by what I've read. I mean, I think it took him 18 months or so and he was holed up in some New Mexico house that he had bought. He bought a theater in the town that they could run dailies in and uh, basically just partied his ass off with all kinds of celebrities and hangers on while at the same time just tried to put this movie together and it really altered and changed throughout that 18 month process. So, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, uh, the, the documentary I'm referring to is called the American dreamer, which you can actually rent very easily. It's on like all the VOD, uh, channels. If, if, if you wanted to rent it and I know, well, I mean, I don't want to speak for you, Joe, because I know it was a struggle for you to get through both of these, but I do think the American dreamer is at least the, it's one of those examples where it's not great in itself either, but I think it's more honest or it, it feels like a slightly more coherent um, idea uh, than the last movie or executed idea. And it also, you know, just shows Den- it hangs Dennis Hopper out to dry uh, in a way that, you know, I, I guess I have to appreciate the honesty. But yet there's a lot of eye rolling aspects to 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 this era of Dennis Hopper to these movies. Yeah, I think that it's it's a, it's a pretty like fascinating um portal into like a moment in someone's career where like you know dennis hopper is arguably one of the like he 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 his movie easy rider changed things along with the you know a handful of other movies that were really kind of like throwing down the gauntlet turning the worm changing the game if you were and uh like it was a point where like the movies that were kind of swinging for the fences, enough of them were connecting with the audiences that then studios were like, well, we don't know what the formula is anymore. So let's just like easy rider was a huge success. And the sort of movement that seemed to support it was a demographic that didn't make any sense to like the, the, the traditional studio model. So they're like, okay, you do whatever you want. And like handing, <laughs> total control over to someone who is in this kind of truly experimental phase of like, you know, being impulsive and being reckless. And like, those are, like you said, those are all qualities that we traditionally kind of like lionize and celebrate, but there can be an overindulgent quality to them. And it's like Dennis Hopper, you know, through the documentary about him, American dreamer, like it shows him kind of, though he's confident and verbose, um, you know, I say verbose, but like (laughs) listening to him talk, it was so fucking rambling and grating to listen to. Mm. Um, He doesn't know why he may not necessarily know why easy rider clicked the way it did. So it's just like, if he all of a sudden has this hubris of being like, 
my instincts are on point. I have my finger on the pulse. I know the zeitgeist. The people are like, I made this movie that broke ground. I'm going to continue to do so. And then wanders off in a peyote haze into this movie. That's entirely fragmented, disoriented to a, to a largely to a thankless degree. You know what I mean? It's like, you forget that when a movie is as sort of like challenging as this is that like challenging isn't always an achievement. You know, I think that there's this like mm-hmm. film school preoccupation with difficulty being some sort of accomplishment where it's like, ah, oh, do you see that movie? Man, I got through it. Well, good for you. Like what the fuck? Like th- that's not an achievement necessarily. Cause like a lot of times difficulty can be tedious, you know, like, yeah. and that's what largely what, a lot of the last movie is it's this, I think at a distance, you can say it's this deconstruction of like film itself, where this hired hand played by Dennis Hopper is working on this Western being shot in Peru. And after the film wraps, he's sort of wandering around in this drug haze with this local woman. And then a loose part of the plot is the locals who have been inspired by the violence in the film, try to recreate it you know, while shooting it with mock cameras that aren't real, that aren't actually capturing anything, but the film is capturing the film that's not being made. Right. And it's real violence that they're using real violence, fake movie where it's. Yeah, yeah, totally. So like there is a meta deconstruction that like when you're reading about it sounds a lot more interesting than the actual execution of the film itself. Yes. (laughs) And has these long sort of languid sections of, folk scored just scenery and like (laughs) one of my professors in college oddly enough in eugene oregon um was just talking about he was talking about performance art Mm -hmm. and um one of the takeaways like this is a very broad question he asked but was he asked like what gift are you giving and like i think about that in terms of like a lot of art and that's you know like I asked someone that once in terms of like challenging work and someone was like, well, does it have to be a gift? And I'm like, well, I think you're like misperceiving what gifts could actually be. Like you can watch something that's unpleasant and still take something away from it. That, that is in itself a gift. The confrontation can be a gift in terms of what it sort of wakes up in you. Mm. But there's like, is there a gift in boredom? Is there a gift in frust in a frustration that just feels ugly and trapped. There's a, did you read the Roger Ebert movie? Yes. May I read some of it for you? Please. Yes. Okay. There are all sorts of things you can say about it using easy, critical words to describe it as undisciplined, incoherent, a structural mess, but mostly it's just plain pitiful. (laughs) That's, I wonder is it might be in one of his, that book that's like I hate your movie. Isn't yeah. that what it's called? Yeah, <laughs> his face is amazing on that cover too. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I just like I think that like I mean I was I definitely was actively frustrated with you while watching the last movie because like this is this is you I totally signed off on the inclusion of this in our discussion of you know. Hal, which was going to be the sort of like centerpiece of this episode. Mm. 
Because I, I think that the two definitely complement each other, you know, yes. and like the last movie is getting a 4K restoration that's playing theatrically, already played in L.A. May, is it currently playing in Portland? It played a couple weeks ago at the Film Center. Um, uh, the, the restoration okay. did. There is a Blu-ray coming out. It's a somewhat new distributor called Arbellos, and um, they'll be putting a Blu-ray out in October, I believe. So you could look out for that. And then they're also working in talk about a challenging uh, distributor or films. They, they're putting out that Satan Tango. The like eight hour Bellatar movie. Oh, uh, right, right, right. Yeah, they're putting that out next. So they go for challenging stuff like this, no doubt. Yeah. So, so I remember you being like, I've been, I've been fascinated with this movie, like hearing about it for a long time. And so, like, as I'm watching it, I'm like, Eric, why do you fall for this shit? Like, <laughs> you know, and like, because, because I think there is that, that challenge that, you know, the, that gets thrown out. That's like, Oh man, this is hard to watch. You're like, I'm in, I want that. I want difficulty because that's associated with like a certain accomplishment for right. having gotten through something. And I, yeah, I just wonder like what, you know, like what, like I, this did carve out a certain space that the movement that Dennis Hopper assumed would go for didn't go for, <laughs> but like maybe him planting this flag and this terrain does kind of unknowingly pave a way for something a little more sort of like, you know, like dramatically successful, you know, something a little more rewarding, something that does provide a gift to some extent, you know, I think the gift to take away from this movie is really like for filmmakers, like what not to do, right? There's lessons to be yeah. learned. There's lessons to be learned from the Dennis Hoppers and the Michael Caminos of the world. I mean, Francis Coppola is one of these examples too, you know, it wasn't, it could have been apocalypse now that ended his run in the late seventies, but that movie turned out to be amazing and a big hit. I mean, but a few years later, I think he, I think it was one from the heart that was really expensive and hurt him too, hurt the studio that funded it. So yeah, there are, there's lessons to be taken away from this. And I think a lot of our favorite directors or directors that are at least trying to do things in a larger context of modern day movies, um, you know, the aforementioned Quentin Tarantino, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, they've learned the lessons because they know this era so well. You know, I bet they've seen the last movie or they they know that they can indulge. I mean, who's I mean, Tarantino might be the ultimate indulgent director, right? That's a fair thing to to label him as. But I still think he's learned the lessons of like he would never make a last movie. I think he knows better. I think he also wants to entertain more than blow people's minds in the way that Hopper thinks he might have or thought he might have been able to. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I think there's just there's lessons to be learned in that cast context. But in terms of like for an audience appreciation, uh, you're right. I do. I I do fall for this stuff. But I also I, I, I hope I always feel that way about something that sounds difficult. Or has a bad reputation, you know, like that I had read that Roger Ebert review of the last movie long time ago. It's probably how I heard of the last movie, you know, and then it just it starts to grow in my mind because it's it for a while. It was hard to find if you could find it at all. And it just grows a mythology in your mind of like, well, yeah, I've seen so many of the other, you know, just already declared classics of the era. I want to see the ones that kind of messed with the system, you know, that, that always sounds interesting, but uh, yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't deny uh, that the last movie is, is a, is like a chore to sit through. And 
Man, the more I read about it, um, Alex Cox, the director of Repo Man and yeah. uh, Sid and Nancy, is a massive fan of this movie. And it is, it's a really good example of something I think we've gotten to or probably referenced at some point on a podcast, you and I. But like, I wish I loved the movie the way Alex Cox loves the last movie. Like, I wish I saw what he yeah. saw in it. And, but he knows, I think what it is, is he even attempted, he, uh, he didn't complete it, but he made a, a documentary. It's about an hour long called scene missing, uh, about the last movie. And it's, he did it in like the mid two thousands and you can watch it for free on, on his Vimeo page. And I did. So I really dove deep into this movie in this era, but I still like came away thinking, gosh, I, I do love when a critical voice like Alex Cox, I actually like him more as a film writer than I do as a filmmaker. Um, yeah. and, I, I love the way he talks about movies like this is like, man, like he saw something great in it. Even by all accounts, um, he does really thorough reporting on that documentary. And uh, there was a coherent, uh, like linear version of this movie. Apparently the script was like a well-written script of the last movie. And it was going to be a good little movie by like the editor's accounts. And in that 18 month process, that's documented in the American dreamer documentary. Like that's when he started fucking with the order of the movie. And that's, I could see how people like he's got, apparently at the time he had people like Alejandro Jodorowsky showing up and he's partying with a lot of the weirdo, interesting artists of that time that are, that are pushing things forward. But I don't know. I mean, there's a cocktail of drugs and alcohol that, Hopper was t- imbibing in clearly so much that I-, I just think that and hubris just sort of, he lost his way um, in that process. But I don't know, man, like I-, I would have loved to have seen that coherent version of the last movie. I think it could have been really interesting if he would have really stuck to that idea of a, 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 a town of locals in, in South America that are, you know, inspired by the filmmaking they see and, and all that stuff. That seems really like, it's layered with a lot of like meta interesting elements going on, but the movie we actually see, which I'm glad is existing. Like it's, it is still not, not a movie I enjoyed either very much, but I am really glad that this is getting like the 4k Blu-ray restoration push by a company like that, by Arbellos. Like, man, you really have to like go out on a limb to do that. You know, like there's going to like money has to be poured into these things. And, um, I had read as well that Dennis Hopper wanted this to get put out before he died and he just never could like get the funding, get whatever you need to, to get a push for something like that to happen. But the guy couldn't do it. Like even like, you know, in his like later years, which I, I find kind of sad, even though I don't like this movie very much, but um, I just think it's still like catnip for, for cinephiles, for people that are super interested in that era. Like, um, you know, give it a shot. I wouldn't blind buy the Blu-ray if anybody who's like, oh man, I just want to see this movie when it comes out. I would be a little bit more hesitant. Make sure you're like into the, into it, I guess, before you commit to something like that. But, uh, certainly like look out for it and see if you can rent it. Um, if like me, you just have a, a passing or a, a very, you know, strong, uh, desire to to catch up on these oddities or the failed experiments of that era. Because even with that, like, I think I would still choose something as trying and patience uh, trying as, as the last movie is. But now there's an actual, you have the ability to see it in the best possible way. Um, so the fact that I got to see this in a theater while the movie itself was 
a tough sit, like not enjoyable very much. I am glad I saw the last movie. I don't think I'll be owning the Blu-ray myself to revisit it, but I'm really glad I've seen it in the best context possible. Yeah, I remember you being like, you know, I I think I may have heard that, that uh, Alex Cox was a fan of the last movie. And I thought about him actually during the course of watching the last movie because I thought about Walker and straight to hell, which I think Dennis Hopper is in. Um, mm, yeah. But like this sort of deconstructionist Western, you know, approach where like there's um, weird anachronisms in, uh, in Walker, uh, which stars Ed Harris, where like a helicopter will fly over, which is like not sort of <laughs> doesn't make sense in the time period that the film's taking place in, <laughs> but they, that wasn't a, that wasn't like a glitch or a mistake that was deliberate to show like a a sort of intentional overlap with like that era with the era that he was making the movie in. And so there's something subversive at work in the work of Alex Cox. But what's, what's interesting to me is that like you don't, you don't like him as a filmmaker. Like you're pretty dismissive of repo man, which hurts my feelings. I'm Um, sorry. (laughs) I don't like Sid and Nancy very much either. I gotta be honest. I remember you shitting on that movie too. Um, There's an immediacy to his work that in the words of my professor, what gift are you giving? Like Mm. his movies are engaging in an entertainment way. And I know that that's like, you know, in the sort of film circle jerk off that we're talking (laughs) about where people are indulging in the punishment of endurance cinema. Entertainment is kind of derogatory. But I think that that's the gift of Alex Cox's movies is they're subversively funny. They're engaging in an entertaining way. And so that they can deconstruct things and still have like an immediate hook to them that like is the appeal. And so like Repo Man has a like moment to moment sense of energetic spontaneity where you're like, what the like there's such an absurdism at work in this movie that's like hilarious, like moment to moment. You don't think so. But, you know. (laughs) Uh, <laughs> occasionally I do <laughs> Not <the> yeah <laughs> but like yeah so so it's just like sitting through a movie as discoherent because I refuse to say incoherent I'm just gonna say discoherent as the nice. last movie <laughs> like I just don't there there's just there's a grading quality to it there isn't I couldn't even like let the scenery be the focal point and just enjoy that because right. there was a sort of jumbled handheld wooziness to it that drove me fucking crazy. And I was just like, so I was flashing through movies that are like challenging and difficult of like, okay, what did I, what did I attach to with those that is entirely thanklessly alienating to me now watching this? And I just, I was like, I like trash humpers for God's sake, like who <laughs> more alienating than that movie. So yeah, Trash I don't, I don't know. It's like, more entertaining I, than last movie. And I didn't like trash humpers all that much. Yeah. Yeah. It's, so, yeah. So I, I, I'm, I'm glad to be, you know, told if not reminded that Alex Cox was a fan. Cause you know, that'll, that'll just, you know, compel me to, to revisit his work and maybe force you to watch it with a, with a hold up on a Alex Cox movie. It's a good idea. I think Walker sounds rad. I've not seen that. And I like Ed Harris as an actor. So maybe, maybe that one. Yeah, he's a Alex Cox is actually a big fan of the Hitcher. Oh, nice. He's your oh man, your brother's from another he's mother. <laughs> I think it's amazing how lucky we are to be in our profession and have uh, movies uh, to 
remember people with. I think the films of Hal Ashby have had an enormous effect on most of the great filmmakers that we admire. The winner is Hal Ashby. Ten or eleven features, seven in the seventies, that are just an astonishing string of masterpieces. I want to thank Hal Ashby for your courage. Hal Ashby was obsessed with film. He'd smoke some punch and he would work all night. It's, it's still a little astonishing to me why he hasn't had his due. I mean, that's all we have as filmmakers are our instincts and nothing else. In other words, what I feel about something, the only thing I know. The film will tell you what to do. Oscilloscope is putting out the new documentary, Hal, about filmmaker Hal Ashby. And um, as much as I've been a fan of his films, it was like, really nice to have a context because I don't know that I've read a lot about him. I just knew him as the sort of like, you know, bushy bearded <laughs> kind of like hippie uh, father figure, you know, for, for a lot of uh, uh, sort of like adored films from the 1970s, like Harold Maude coming home shampoo being there. Um, the last detail. Um, the landlord is, is his first one. Yeah, which I haven't seen Same. still. Yeah. But um yeah, he's somebody that like I think it was like during the the late nineties, there was like a crop of independent filmmakers who would like be mentioning him in interviews. And so I started, you know, while like going to video stores a lot, I just started picking up his movies and, you know, watching like Harold Maud being there. Um, I think Spike Jones is a big proponent of being there. And I know that Wes Anderson was like, hugely influenced by him. David O. Russell is featured in the documentary. How, um, as like, you know, somebody who was gigantically influenced by him. So it was like getting the context and his sort of like backstory as coming into the industry, which still had like an intimacy and an approachability that seems fascinating at this point, yeah. you know, like that, <laughs> He could he could go to a temp agency and be like, I want to work in the film industry. Yeah. And then, well, here we got a job for you on the I think it was Universal. Right. Or maybe not. I think so. Yeah. But yeah. He was just he was working on this machine and that was his entry point. And he then went on to become like an editor and, you know, met Norman Jewison and like they started collaborating and then from there it was like off to the races in terms of like you know his his drive to be a director and a storyteller in the medium of film and so yeah like having finally having like a context for him and seeing how he kind of came to be as iconic as he was was like interesting for somebody who like you know I have a, a pretty like loose understanding of him as as a figure but um what about you? What was your relationship with him prior to this documentary? Uh, only having seen a few movies. Um, uh, Harold and Maude was the first one I saw. Harold and Maude is really the movie. I think it's a great entry point for him. If, if nobody's, if, yeah. if anybody listening hasn't seen a Hal Ashby movie. Also, I, I think you mentioned Wes Anderson. If you like Wes Anderson, I think Harold and Maude is like one of the essential movies to see 
what helped create the Wes Anderson style. I think, I think it's yeah. just inescapable. Um, and, and a lot of his other movies, but really Harold and Maude has a very strong Wes Anderson vibe. But of course, you know, preceding that, like he, he is very influential to a lot of like the big directors right now. Uh, um, and yet still has a sort of subdued or quiet legacy, I think in, in terms of the era, um, he wasn't as loud or, you know, over the top as Dennis Hopper. He kind of looked like him in that, he, mm-hmm. you know, but uh, was a softer, quieter guy, it seemed like. Um, but my relationship to him was was seeing that. And uh, what's the one he did about Woody Guthrie with David Carradine? Um, Bound for Glory. Yeah, Bound for Glory, which is a beautiful movie. And I didn't know this, uh, but the documentary, Hal, points out that it has the first use of a steady cam in it, which I thought was kind of Cool, yeah. little geeky information, um, but that is that's a beautiful little biopic movie that I think is better than most of the genre. Uh, so I'd appreciated those movies, but for me, I really found him to be a tragic figure, especially in the the great book Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, the Peter Biskin book. And we've referenced this book a lot. It's of that era. It it talks about these directors, and Ashby is one of those guys that. Um, at that time in the seventies had a great career. He got to make a lot of great films. He had, I mean, this documentary points out the incredible run he had in the seventies, uh, right up to being there. And, uh, then he did kind of look like he put out a bunch of anonymous eighties movies that I didn't even know he put out. He put out a baseball movie called the slugger's wife. Yeah, I, was slugger's like, wife. I was like, what the fuck? Yeah. Uh, weird. Um, and, I like that this documentary, um, you know, for these kind of director documentaries that I just feel like I hope we keep getting more and more, um, especially the ones of this era. Like it's I appreciate when they go through the majority of the films and don't try to hide the ones that are like the lesser movies. So to me, that was like I got to learn something about that, you know, about Ashby, the stuff he did after the era that's always talked about. But okay, yeah, go ahead. Doesn't that make you? a little sad though that mm. <laughs> like movies like this the documentaries that are a comprehensive look at a filmmaker it just feels like the more the more common they become like it's a moratorium on a certain like era of film and maybe it's just that like a certain period there was like there was a secrecy around the film world, like it wasn't as accessible because we didn't have access to, to every aspect of everything all the time, the way we do now. And so therefore there's like undiscovered sections and, you know, behind just stories behind stories that like you can, you could flesh an entire documentary out of, Mm. but it just seems like movies like De Palma movies like this. And, you know, there's even one about, uh, Larry Cohen, I can't remember what it's called. It came out a few months ago. I went and saw him do like a do like a, a screenwriting kind of like free seminar once. And he was talking about how he kind of came to the film industry, how he just showed up at an, like a production company. Mm. And, uh, you know, one of the higher ups heard a secretary be rude to him. She was like, get out of here. We don't have any work for you. And then the guy pulled him aside and was like, what are you what are you looking to do? And he's like, I want to write movies. And he was like, okay, well, do you know how to write? And he's like, no. He's like, well, take the script home and study it. And I was like, what the fuck? Like hearing someone describe how intimate the world was back then, how approachable it was. 
like I was just like, well, that's gone. That's annihilated. And like, there may be new, new inroads to how people make things, you know, and like new opportunities that like just weren't available to people in an industry that still was a, though it was approachable, it still seemed massive and out of reach. Like I, I, I there, there was like, I think that there's like a quaintness to the world mm. and the, the depiction of it, it just, it just feels like there, it's like a headstone on like an era that's dead. And it's just like, well, are there going to be documentaries about what's happening now? Do we not have the sort of vantage point to be clear about that? I don't know. It's just, it's, it, it's as, as great as these documentaries have been to delve into like De Palma and like how there also is like a sort of like hint of sadness about them, mm. you know, that it just feels like a certain, certain era is behind us and the, you know, like, and they're like, where are we now? Kind of. Sure. Uh, I, I, I think it's that, but this might just be a very clear example of uh, kind of yours and my, like our yin and yang that we kind of have together because I actually see it as like, you know, this this movie has the potential to at least make some more people aware of Hal Ashby. And now that we live in an era where you can actually easily see mostly really good versions of those movies, I don't know. That's a positive thing. But yes, it's it is it is a it is a sad remembrance. I think the other thing to that's important to remember, um, historically, there are cycles that happen like this because now these directors that are getting highlighted in these documentaries, um, I just wanted to mention a few others too. Like Altman has one. There's one about yep. John, John Milius. There's one yes. about Sidney Lumet. And uh, Friedkin has one that premiered at the Venice Film Festival. It's called Friedkin Uncut. I, I read a sort of middling review on it recently, but I'm excited to see that. Um, so those directors, when they were becoming, when they were getting their opportunities, a lot of them did their version of this. Uh, Peter Bogdanovich, one of the seventies, great directors, I think made several of these because he became friends with his heroes when he became a big deal in the seventies. So he, uh, I know he did a documentary on John Ford and he befriended Orson Welles and worked with him on uh, now what's going to be a new Orson Welles release by Netflix. Uh, this movie, The Other Side of the Wind, that just recently premiered. Like, um, And anyway, but the, those directors did that for the, their heroes when they were coming up. And now um, that's happening more right now because there just seems to be enough interest for smaller distributors to put out these little documentaries about these directors that a lot of us love, you know, and that's why a lot of us are in this business in one form or the other because of these, these directors. So I don't know. I think, I think it's, I think it's, it's got sad qualities to it. I think it has positive qualities to it. And Hal Ashby's story is nothing if not sad. I mean, the documentary gets into this, but I really remember in the book, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, that like he's the tragic figure of that book. Like everybody loved him by all accounts, but he never could get along with the studio, the heads, you know, and, and right. he, the documentary gets into this, but he really had so much conflict about what he could do and and the messages he was trying to put out. Um that he's a tragic figure. What was the, um, you'll remember, I think the book by Jason Zinneman that was about whore directors of the era. What was the shock book? value? Thank you. That book. Excellent book as well. 
Do you remember the Dan Sullivan sections? You know, the the writer of Alien. He worked with John Carpenter. Hal Ashby is sort of Dan the, O'Bannon. You mean? Thank you. I'm I'm sorry. Yes, Dan O'Bannon. Uh, I remembered it so well. I forgot his name. But they are like the same characters in those books. The books are very similar in terms of the era and what they're looking at and how there was a rise and fall kind of arc to a lot of that. Uh, and those directors, but like Dan O'Bannon and Hal Ashby were like the characters that I just like, I was in their corner throughout the entire book yeah. and uh, you feel for them. And it, it that's that specifically, that kind of personal specificity is for me, something I can wrap maybe my brain and my emotions on more easily where I, I can feel the sadness of that, of like what could have been, I mean, Hal Ashby died very young. So did Dan O'Bannon. And like that, I would have liked to have seen that Hal Ashby get to, when you when so many people can look back and see the the incredible run of those movies in the 80s uh, in the 70s for Hal Ashby and like this guy struggled to fucking get to make anything right like that's yeah. sad that's that's sad to me but um you know you pick you pick whatever sad elements you want from from these documentaries but uh i don't know i can't help but still get excited by them but i i think the more they come out it might it might also just become a little rote and kind of tired at some point. So, um, yeah, I, I acknowledge your sadness, Joe. I just feel sad in a different way. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just think that it there's we're we're obviously in an interesting period where we're not sure where the art form is going. We don't have the sort of benefit of hindsight to sort of look back, you know, the way we do with eras like the '70s, where we can sort of construct the the narrative of like the rise and fall of certain things and like the, you know, the way we mythologize certain periods, like we're not able to sort of see the entire story yet, but you know, like the industry is certainly in, you know, a good amount of flux where it seems like, you know, studios that have become corporations that are interested in franchises are largely looking at directors as, you know, not as important, you know, they certainly want capable directors who can make, you know, uh, streamlined product but you know with you know disney firing you know a, a lot of the directors involved with the marvel franchise it's clear that the they see directors as largely interchangeable and so yeah you know directors with a you know singular vision with who are you know like who have a particular viewpoint and like you know that do have visionary qualities you know, are like they're they're still definitely appreciated, but like it seems like they're getting marginalized. They're not making the movies that are are sort of dominating the culture. You know, and like you know, in in how they talked about movies that have since become iconic, like Harold Maude. You know, they talked about it. They're like, well, Harold Maude came and went. I was just like, well, really? Because that's really stuck. You know, yeah. like that's really one that people often come back to. That is kind of iconic and larger than life. And so to think about it, having been something that was kind of like rinsed through the th its theatrical run and then caught on later is like is interesting because like how often does that happen now? Because the things that don't catch instantaneously are then at the bottom of your watch list and your queue. And it's just like gathering dust in the sort of discount bin of irrelevance, you know? And so it's just like, that's kind of what I mean by the sadness of yeah. like, is this a moratorium on like an appreciation of artists, of filmmakers who like now it's like as, as much as like there are artists and filmmakers to celebrate 
currently, you know, a lot of which have been making movies this year that we've been, you know, like, you know, headbutting about in, in celebration of you know, that, that's just what it, that instead of high fiving, I imagine you and I smashing our heads together instead <laughs> in, in celebration. But, uh, you know, like Lynn Ramsey with you were never really here. Like that's that, like, I won't even say that that's a movie that feels like a seventies movie because it just, it feels like it's of right now from yeah. a filmmaker that's of right now. And it's like, but it, it has, all the grit and electricity and immediacy to it. And so I don't know, like though we can't see the whole picture yet, you know, I, I feel like we, we, we try, we try to you and I, it's true. <laughs> but like this has been a good reality check for, you know, an, an era that's often mythologized and uh, is how coming out theatrically in Portland? Uh, not not this Friday, uh, but it opens this Friday in a few spots in theaters, and then I think it will. I think it will gradually roll out. I'm not sure when it's coming to Portland, but um, also Oscilloscope's pretty good about managing things on VOD and making those yeah. available when they when they f- see it necessary. So, um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> when it's nobody's fun. going to the theater. Let's put it out. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think Ashby's head would have fucking exploded if he was still alive at this time and having to like, you know, conceive yeah. of working on a Disney project or something like that. Um, but it would be directors like Lynn Ramsey or or those that would like blow his mind in the good way of like, I, I thought about from the movie of like what a skilled editor apparently he was they, they make uh, the case for. Um, this dude would have went nuts with with digital editing tools that you have now, and like the things that would have taken him so long, and the process he loved. He could have, I, I think, he would have loved something like what Lynn Ramsey does with "You Were Never Really Here" and, and her editor. I mean, the way that that movie's constructed, he he would find he would find the, the you know the good stuff in there, but it's it's a big pile to go through <laughs> that that we yeah. we excavate all the time, and we we're always looking for the good stuff, but. Uh, yeah, I, I uh, yeah, I'm sure this one. I'm sure Hal's going to get a, a very small release, but like this is this is one for you know the movie lovers for sure. I think I think you got to see it. So yeah, it does right by him. I think so. Yeah, I uh, I I dusted off my video copy of Eight Million Ways to Die, even though like that the documentary <laughs> gives a sad context to the sort of how that movie came out. Yeah, how is that one? Um, I haven't seen it in a long time. I found it on video because, you know, the artwork is really, it's, I love it. Nice. It's, nice. it's got that sort of painterly video, video cover quality. It's yeah. nice. We, we rented Bean there, uh, just over the weekend, uh, me and Elaine did, and I, I hadn't seen it before and it's, I think it's one of the great movies of that era, like instantly. Yeah. I, I adored it and man, talk about a potent, uh, very, to right to today relevant uh relevant right. things going on in that movie man uh peter sellers is incredible that movie is um yeah it was was kind of amazing how much it's like wow this could have come out this could come out this friday and people would be talking about how like on point it is um so yeah you would, you would hope but you, right knows? what they would actually be talking about see there you go i'm looking at it's it's optimistic optimism pessimism back and forth yeah not that i think it's as relevant i just don't know that people would be talking exactly no and that's that's fair what is it why do i need to watch it Uh, well i mean you explained it to me i've i've essentially seen it that's okay (laughs) watch some gifts now what (laughs) and now back to my watch list 
All right. Well, let's uh, before we get too negative, why don't we wrap this one up? What do you say? Fine. <laughs> so just chill to the next episode. All right. This has been episode 183 of Adjust Your Tracking. You can find uh, all of our recent episodes at theplaylist.net. Just click on the podcast tab there. You will also see on the podcast tab that we have other shows that are part of the Playlist Podcast Network. And whatever podcatcher you use, just look up the Playlist Podcast Network. You'll get all our shows on that feed and go from there. Um, you can email us specifically if you want to let us know anything at adjustyourtracking at gmail.com. Uh, any other parting words you'd like to give to the listener, Joe? Um, yeah, the, the heat is on. Nice. <laughs> it's a great song. And I... When we saw that movie together, uh, Beverly Hills Cop, I saw you jump out of your seat, basically, when that music coup came on. It's glorious. Yeah, like there's <laughs> uh, like that movie is so energetic in that sense. Uh, we'll, we'll save it for another. Episode. I'm just going to keep talking about Beverly Hills Cop until the show stops. You should, because that'll keep a smile on your face. And that's that's what I need. I need a smiling Von Oppen. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, buddy. Thanks. <laughs>